0: Hello and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers and today I'm welcome. I'm pleased to welcome Doug Lair. Doug Lair is the founder and principal of Integris Technology Services, LLC. He has over 41 years of experience in the development of downhole tools for oil and gas wells and has built a track record of success in technical management innovation, and industry leadership. Doug has developed numerous products for oil and gas well applications, including composite, frac plugs, and high-pressure, high-temperature, or HPHT, uh, tools. He's authored 21 technical papers, articles, and editorials, and holds 29 US patents in the area of HPHT tools, composite tools, downhole communication methods, and many others. Doug has lectured extensively on the topics of shale wells and HPHT applications and is recognized as an industry expert on both topics. Doug was selected by the Society of Petroleum Engineers to be an SPE Distinguished Lecturer on the topic of multi-zone isolation. Doug has also chaired SPE Workshops on HPHT applications in 2014 and 2015. Additionally, Doug and his team have received industry recognition for engineering achievement of the HART's ENP Meritorious Engineering Award and World Oil Award. He is the completions editor for the Journal of Petroleum Technology and a member of API Product Standard Committees 11D1, 19TT and 19AC. Doug holds a BS degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Texas and an MBA in finance and and marketing from the University of Houston. Doug Lair,
1: welcome, and thanks for joining us. Tim, thank you very much. It's great to be here, and I look forward to our discussion today. So, So, Doug, you've been involved in new
0: product development and design for reliability for some time. What advice would you give to reliability engineers who participate in new product development? How how can they be more
1: effective? Well, Tim, there's several ways in which they can become effective, uh, more effective. One is that they should take the time to understand the product and its applications. They should also become familiar with the economics of the business in general. Learning about end user expectations for reliability is also critical. And on this point, the definition of reliability as we know, will vary from product to product. And it's very important to, to know uh, what the definition is. Some products are designed for a short service life, while others must have a very long service life. But knowing which applies in which instance to which product is a key. Uh, reliability engineers must also be engaged as early as possible in any new product development. Because by engaging early uh, and understanding end user expectations and the product economics, the reliability engineer can make cost-effective recommendations that will maximize his or her value to the team. Uh, you know, it seems like such
0: common sense to me, uh, Doug. You know, uh, what, are, are, are we saying that reliability engineers are a little too focused on the, 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 the science, but not enough
1: on the business? That is my experience. Um, and my experience has also been that once The product engineers and and the uh, product marketing people engage in advance with the reliability engineers. Uh, The reliability reliability engineers now understand the uh, end user expectations for the product. They know how it's going to be used. Uh, They start understanding some of the, oh we'll say environmental aspects that are out of the OEM's control uh, that might compromise the product. And what it helps them do is focus in on recommendations for the team for achieving intrinsic reliability in the product. And uh, my experience is once they have this understanding, that their recommendations are are very, very um, helpful and value adding rather than just highly theoretical.
0: That makes sense.
1: You know, Doug, I spent a lot of time
0: uh, working on inkjet printers when I was at HP. And, and, you know, when we did new product designs, we followed a a product development management system. I suspect that most people working on a hardware have a product development management system of some kind. Why isn't this working? Why do we still see
1: reliability problems? Well, Tim, let me first congratulate you on the HP inkjet printers, because I've always thought very highly of them as products. I own several of them. Um, but in general, uh, and, and I've seen it many times in the upstream energy business, there is always pressure to expedite engineering work, complete the prototype testing, get to market and see the revenue. Um, now, because of this, product de-risking uh, historically and even today is, is often ignored or it's inadequate and this leads to problems in laboratory testing, which then leads to project delays. And ultimately, this increases the risk of failure during product introduction or commercialization. Uh, Of course, an objective here is to have a clean product introduction and avoid brand damage. Um, So I always recommend a longer planning or conceptual phase which enables early risk discovery and mitigation. Uh, which keeps the project on schedule and it helps set the stage for a successful product launch. You know, Doug, it kind of reminds me of the old saying, there's, there's never,
0: there never seems to be time to do it, to do it right the first time, but there's plenty of time to
1: fix the problem later. Very true. Very true. And, um, I have seen this many, many times in the upstream energy business. In fact, um, (laughs) one of the one of the, the things about the upstream business is there there always seems to be time to fix these problems in the field should they should they rear their ugly head right. and i've seen this promote a hero culture whereby those who were assigned to fix the problem and get the customer smiling again receive tremendous recognition um but this kind of philosophy that says you know ignore the problems and we'll fix it later it It ultimately leads to low frequency or maybe even high frequency, but high impact product failures, which are increasingly expensive to mitigate in the world of oil and gas exploration and development.
0: Well, I was just going to say in your industry, the cost of failure is extremely high. Uh, you know this this problem of fire prevention versus fire f- fighting or uh, uh, you know the cost, the cost of risk mitigation or risk avoidance versus the cost of some kind of uncertain future event is one of the big challenges that a lot of people face. And again, this is a, a particularly uh, you know vexing problem in, in your world um, where the cost of failure is extremely high. How does that change the way you look at reliability testing and risk planning?
1: Well, to give you a, a feel first for what the uh, liability can be, If we consider an offshore well that costs billions of dollars to drill and complete, the cost of fixing a product failure after it's been installed in that well is prohibitive. And here's why. Um, The products I'm familiar with may be used in a four-mile deep well, right? So that's in excess of uh, 20,000 feet deep. This well would be drilled from a floating vessel operating in six to 9,000 foot of water 400 miles away from the coastline, which means that support and logistics is handled by uh, support vessels and and helicopters. Ultimately, uh, this type of an operation costs about a million dollars per day for the operator, who is the end user or consumer of, of downhole tools. So just one failure or even a malfunction in a well such as this can wipe out an entire product line, a product line's entire annual profit, and impair future sales opportunities. Um, so, the mentality that says "Don't worry about this; it'll probably" keyword "probably" never ever happen. Right, right. <laughs> and if it does, we'll find the time to fix it. Is really a non-starter in today's upstream energy business. And so, I would very simply say, I wish that there's another wise saying could be embraced at all times, which is, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And um, risk discovery and mitigation, particularly through the use of FMEA and periodic uh, design risk assessments and reliability testing, uh, based on those FMEAs and, and assessments, and other design for reliability activities are proven for avoiding these costly types of failures, and they need to be practiced with consistency. And my observation is that they're not practiced with consistency at the moment. You know, let me let me ask you a
0: little bit more about FMEAs, Doug. You've been doing you've done a, a fair number of FMEAs over the years, and of course, FMEA has been a, as a, a tool has been around for quite a while. What What would you recommend to to ensure that FMEAs are successful? What 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 makes for a
1: successful FMEA and how can we get more value from this? That's a great question. Uh, Many people think that they know what FMEA is all about and how to conduct it. Uh, but for the most part, many of them do not. So first of all, I would say conduct FMEAs. That would be a great first step right there. <laughs> let's, let's try it. Yeah, exactly. We've got nothing to lose, but just a few man hours. Um, you know, the, the, basics of FMEAs are beyond the facilitator and beyond people who are practitioners. The basics are usually not well understood by other stakeholders. And I've always found that communicating to stakeholders in advance a list of expectations for everything from scope to time commitment to meeting etiquette to the deliverables is very, very helpful in ensuring that the meeting is, is, is uh, productive. Uh, next thing I've seen is that many FMEAs fail because of poor scoping. Uh-huh. So I, I would recommend that the FMEA scope uh, be reviewed and reviewed and reviewed and and is manageable, uh, and that it's understood by all stakeholders. So, Doug, do you
0: do you think do you think that there are, are folks that are that assume that FMEA is just an engineering exercise, and uh, you know uh, we don't need to bring business people into into these meetings? I mean, is is that part of the problem? It is indeed
1: part of the problem, Tim. Uh, it is perceived. Uh, among uh, some of the teams I've worked with, as just another, as you point out, just another engineering exercise, the same way as is oh, you know, uh, making calculations, conducting an, uh failure, uh, or rather finite elements analysis, uh, right. and conducting lab testing, and and one of the one of the pitfalls there is that they assume that an FMEA can be conducted in isolation by one person. Uh, it's a matter of just filling out severity, occurrence, and detectability values, and then right. write, writing down something rather. Um, I'll use the word unaccountable for right. how how they're going to mitigate this particular risk, um, and so that that has to change. That that has to be um, has to be understood that FMEA is kind of a team sport. It's a team activity. And we have to bring in SMEs, and not a lot of them, but typically between four and eight, depending upon the complexity of the product, bring those SMEs in because they're going to be the ones who are, who are most qualified to identify design risks. And in the case of a, maybe an installation or a PFMEA, process FMEA, risks associated with um, instructions for installation and, and things like that.
0: You know, I think there's just a lot of people that think FMEA is an end in itself. You know, we filled out the form, they pat each other on the back and we can put this in a file
1: somewhere. It's not the end. It's the beginning. It really is the beginning. And, and, um, the, the key here is that once it's conducted correctly, it's going to generate a lot of recommended actions and the recommended actions are, you know, they're developed and agreed on by the SMEs in attendance. But to achieve the value from the recommended actions, the product team must commit to implementation of all of them. And um, I guess a final word I would say about implementation is that having a workflow that confirms implementation is also recommended.
0: Oh, good point. There needs yeah. to be some follow-up,
1: right? Most definitely. I've, I've worked with a lot of teams who thought that uh, as you pointed out, conducting the FMEA was it. We've had the meeting, we're finished, check the box, move on to the next engineering activity. But um, in in point, as you point out, it's just the beginning because let's say you have a, um, a product that has a parts list of let's say 50 components. Uh, some of those are structural in nature. Some are elastomeric seals, some are fasteners um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you may have in a, in a poorly de-risked design coming into it, you may end up with, you know, I don't know, you may end up with, um, uh, a hundred recommended actions and, um, you know, some of those are going to be high impact or high risk. And so they right. must be addressed. And if they're not addressed, if they're just ignored and the project moves to completion, well, then there's been no value created by conducting the FMEA.
0: You know, um, you know, it's, and it's not just about the design. I like what you said about PFMEA as well. I mean, we need to make sure that uh, that our our processes are also de-risked.
1: No doubt. No doubt. I, um, I see this most often um, with the legacy products for which there is maybe three or four years of commercialization history. And, um, you know, you find out in kind of the typical case that initially everything went fine. Um, but then as you start deploying the, the product into different regions uh, and in the case of a global oil field services business into other countries where you have different languages, cultural norms with regards to training, uh, different frankly, different levels of competencies uh, among the technicians, the PFMEA becomes far more important because typically, you know, you've developed the the product with sponsorship from a certain region and it may be the U.S. or in the last 30 years, it could have been maybe the uh, North Sea sector related to, um, the UK, or Norway. They're sponsoring right. the project. So they're, they tend to be very intimate with the development of the product uh, throughout its 12 or 18-month uh, project duration. So by the time they receive the product for the initial trials, they're very intimate with it. And whether it's written down or not, they already have a very good feel for what the uh, vulnerabilities of the product are. Well, then you, you go through three or six months of introduction there and the project is greenlighted for commercialization. And so the next sale is going to occur in the Far East. Maybe it's going to be in Australia. Maybe it's going to be in Argentina, offshore Brazil. But the point is, is that unless that process for installation in this case has been sufficiently de-risked. Uh, there are going to be problems with those other teams and other locations using uh, the uh, installation instructions,
0: even though they're using exactly the same hardware.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. To Doug, er- earlier you
0: were talking about the need for reliability engineers to better understand the business implications of their recommendations and decisions. You know that sounds good in principle, but what what can we do to help? reliability engineers become more business
1: savvy. Tim, this is a, this is a great point. Um, This really speaks to uh, not only acquiring tenure on the job in your role, but also using that time wisely to learn more about things outside of your comfort zone, if you will. So I would say to to reliability engineers first, take all opportunities to interact with your product line engineers, your manufacturing colleagues, and your marketing colleagues and, and other colleagues in the business and ask them about how your recommendations affect product cost and lead time. Next, I would take every opportunity to learn about applications for the products you're supporting and understand. What creates value for the customer? What are they interested in seeing in terms of reliability? What are they interested in seeing in terms of serviceability and things like that? Uh, Sources of this knowledge are not only within your company, but they include professional societies, uh, conferences, industry publications, and meetings with customers, whether they're virtual or face to face. Um, On that last point, Talk to your marketing and sales colleagues and see if you're able to tag along with them to one one or more meetings with their customers. Uh, I guarantee you that they will be very surprised at what they hear coming from the customer's perspective. And it's not a matter of criticism. It's just a matter of the customer, if you're willing to listen and ask the right questions, will tell you. What's important to them?
0: Well, I, I agree. I mean, I just seeing how, seeing how these systems work in the field, I think, just makes you a better reliability engineer. You know, understanding yeah. how they're installed, how they're being used, how they're being maintained.
1: You just mentioned another great, a great area of learning, and that is field training. Uh, so whether you're on a formal field training program or whether you uh, decide to try and you know get your boss to give you 2 weeks to go spend some time with your service organization doing that once but hopefully periodically so that you expand your knowledge base in the area of of uh, service and installation and the field operations as you refer to doing that will also enhance your your knowledge of the um, of the product and 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 customer expectations for the product also Everything that we design can be compromised some way some, in some way, and sometimes it, it occurs uh, through mishandling in our own uh, operations locations. so knowing how the product is not only used but abused inadvertently through nobody's you know through nobody's fault. sure uh, learning what it has to withstand and put up with as a product is also very important to. To uh, this set of knowledge that you recommend, that you mentioned,
0: sounds great, Doug. Thanks so much for being with us today,
1: Tim. This has been a great experience for me, and, and I hope that what we've talked about is going, going to be um, very helpful for those who listen to this podcast. And um, if there's any uh, follow-up questions from anyone, I'm I'm always available.
0: Well, we'll make your we'll provide your contact information in the uh, the, sh- the show notes. Thank you, Tim. You bet. That was Doug Lair, founder and principal of Integris Technology Services, LLC. To learn more, please visit Integris, that's I N T E G R I S, dash LLC.com. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks for joining us.